you and welcome to the 14th in our series of Urban Transport Bets Conversations with a live online audience on the topics that will help determine the future of urban transport. So whether you're spending your lunchtime with us listening live or whether you're listening to the podcast later or watching the playback on YouTube, thanks so much for joining us. I'm Jonathan Bray, the Director of the Urban Transport Group, the organisation that's hosting these events. And for those of you who don't know us, we bring together the public sector transport authorities for the largest urban areas, Transport for London, Transport for Greater Manchester, Transport for West Midlands and all the other major metro areas as well, serving over 20 million people. As well as being a body that thinks ahead about what next for urban transport, our members can implement that thinking on the ground and can learn collectively from these events. So we're a nation of suburbanites, however, the ubiquity of suburban living is often not reflected in transport policy. The COVID-19 pandemic and climate crisis provides an opportunity to take a fresh look at the suburbs, their transport challenges, but also the transport solutions that will improve the quality of life for all suburban residents. And this online conversation will explore a new urban transport group report, which finds that green sustainable transport is key to shaping a new post-COVID era for suburbs one which offers all suburbanites the promise of the good life. And to discuss this, our guests are my colleague, Rebecca Fuller, who wrote the report. Uh, Becky began working for Urban Transport Group in 2008, and as Assistant Director, she works to make the case for the right policies in urban transport to support inclusive and sustainable growth. Rebecca is Policies Leader on Social Inclusion, Children and Young People, Public Health, and she's planning urban freight and highways. And prior to joining Urban Transport Group, Becky worked in social policy research for a consultancy company, having graduated with first-class honours in social policy from the University of Leeds. She also holds a master's degree in the subject from the University of York. And joining Becca, Dr uh, Nicholas Falk. Nick founded the not-for-profit research and consultancy company, Urbet, in 1976, which now operates as a design cooperative based in Manchester. He's the executive director of the Urbet Trust based in London. Nicholas is an economist, urbanist and strategic planner with degrees from University College Oxford, Stanford Graduate School of Business and the London School of Economics. He specialises in helping towns and cities plan and deliver urban regeneration and sustainable growth. So you can also be part of this conversation in three ways. Firstly, by putting questions, keep them short and sharp via the Zoom questions box. And you can also vote for your favourite. We'll be picking these up in the final section of the conversation. You can also use the comments channel of the Zoom call and you can join in by Twitter using the hashtag UTGnext. That's hashtag UTGnext. Now, normally at this point, I would hand over to the chair of the session, but unfortunately, Steve Chambers, the director of Transport for New Homes, who was going to be chairing the session, has had to pull out due to, due to uh, sickness. So I will be chairing the session. So um, let's kick off and let's get to know our panellists a bit better and to see how they got here. <laughs> so, uh, Becky, can you tell us a bit about your backstory and what got you to the point where you became interested in the future of suburbs? Well, I think you give quite a good uh, overview of my career there in your introduction. Um, I studied social policy at university, specialised in housing policy at that time. Uh, I then worked in social policy consultancy for five years after university, did my master's in social policy too, and then came to PATEG, Passenger Transport Executive Group, as it was, as UTG was then, 
uh, back in 2008 as a policy and research advisor and have been there ever since in various roles. Um, I'd probably add to that that I've never planned really to have a career in transport as a lot of I think a lot of people kind of fall into this area but I'm really glad that it has turned out this way because it, I feel like transport is something that touches everybody's lives every day and getting it right can absolutely transform people's lives their opportunities their health and the health of the planet too so I think it's a really great area to work in that touches so many other sectors and other policy areas um, I'm also mum to two boys aged five and seven and so my real passion is child-friendly neighbourhoods because um, I think if we begin thinking about what neighbourhoods are good for children then we get to the same answers as the neighbourhoods that are good for the planet. Um, so I want my children and other people's children to have the freedom to move around independently. I think um, our car dependency and particularly the car dependency in the suburbs where most children grow up has kind of fundamentally changed the experience of childhood and I think that's really sad to think about all the things that children have sacrificed in the name of the car and so suburbs are kind of the front line of that problem as far as I'm concerned because that's where most most children do their growing up but that's kind of where I'm coming from on this. Thanks Becky and certainly some of that comes through in the report which is good I think the child friendly uh, aspect. Um, Nick uh, can you tell us a bit about your backstory I know it's it's quite a uh, a big bat story and you've been um, involved in a lot of these issues for, for quite some time and can you tell us also a bit about uh, your interest in the, the topic of suburbs and some of the work you've done in that area? Okay well uh, let, let's start with um, 19, uh, 40 years ago or more uh, when I was in the States uh, 50, um, uh, traveling around and seeing how the centers of American cities had hollowed out as the cities had sprawled into the suburbs and I it, it gave me a rather frightening picture of what the future could be like if the trends continued. I started my own company after working as a consultant for McKinsey uh, back in uh, 1976, uh, very much trying to make the most of what we would call the hidden assets of cities, the empty buildings that have been left behind, uh, neglected railways like the one that was built uh, through Brunel's Tunnel, uh, now upgraded as part of the London Overground. And uh, my feeling was always that there were things that could be done just by making the most of what already existed, the legacy, and, and that's um, stayed with me. I got involved with suburbs because we realized, um, I suppose, before 2000, that um, uh, the real battle lines were, were, were the what was happening in the suburbs and uh, a feeling that uh, many of them were weak because so much traffic was going through the centres that they were no longer pleasant places to be, the sort of places that people had first moved to. Um, we uh, produced a report, Vital and Viable Town Centres, for the government, uh, showing uh, ways of uh, tackling the problems or challenges of, of town centres, and we identified suburbs as a distinct category. Uh, we got a commission from the GL, well, we got a series of commissions from the Greater London Authority. Uh, first of all, to look at the state of suburbs, a report called City of Villages, and then a commission which was uh, more interesting to produce a toolkit on making suburbs more sustainable. And, and one of the themes you'll be delighted to hear was reducing dependence on cars. Uh, there were there were seven themes, and I checked it today, and and there were some thirty or so tools for making suburbs more sustainable. All of which seemed as relevant today uh, as they were uh, twenty or so years ago. Um, 
I would be very interested, by the way, in getting uh, your members to have a look and see whether they have produced something similar, because what we tried to do was to make it as succinct as possible and always referenced by things that had been done, not pie in the sky. Um, most recently, uh, I've been using my experience of, of European cities uh, to try to produce, or to produce a book on how cities can switch direction. Uh, and as you know, Jonathan, I'm particularly interested in light rail and trams and what we call swift rail, based on the German Schnellbahn, and um, as ways of, again, making use of what we exist and getting people to shift out of their cars, which are the real killers. Thanks, Nick. And moving on to just set the scene about suburbs, the topic in front of us today. Um, and Nick, when what are we talking about when we talk about suburbs? And does the diversity of suburbs create a challenge when we're thinking about policy approaches? Mm -hmm. Well, given that 80% of people uh, uh, reckon to live in suburbs, we obviously need to think of different kinds of suburbs. And we drew up a whole set of, uh, uh, of categories, ones that grew up as uh, around railway stations, for example, in, in the late 19th century, um, industrial suburbs where people sort of walk to the mill or whatever. There, there are a range of different kinds which have different challenges. But I suppose the common theme is the relatively low density of our population compared with the comparable cities in Europe. And basically, our cities uh, sprawled. And uh, so people are living at perhaps half the densities of, of the cities we often aspire to be like. Um, and I wanted to refer early on to a wonder, your excellent report and a wonderful chart, uh, which you'll find on page, I think, 23, which shows the usage of public transport or cars in relationship to the density of living. And somewhere at around 40 people uh, to the hectare, say around 20 to the acre, uh, there's a crossover. And the reality is that many people live at densities, which make it much easier to use the car. The car is parked in the road outside or in the driveway. And, and so it's natural to just get in it. And this explains the, the challenges for public transport, which has to compete with all those car users. Uh, and it's even worse for people like myself who try and walk everywhere. Incidentally, I, I should have mentioned I live in the centre of London, King's Cross, uh, and walk probably three to six miles a day. And it, it's a delight. Um, but not every city has achieved what London has done in terms of um, reducing car use in the centre. And uh, Becky, I know that um, in some ways it wasn't the easiest uh, report to write um, it's because suburbs are so, uh, so diverse. But um, can you say a little bit more about that challenge around the diversity of suburbs and, and policy approaches and, and yeah. the different kind of suburbs we, we need to be thinking about? Yeah, I think I, I tied myself in knots trying to do what Nick had done, uh, think trying to get a typology of different suburbs. So in the end, I decided to sort of take a bit of a simplified approach and think about the, the common features that kind of unite all suburbs. And that was that relationship to the nearby town and city. Obviously, that's that's central, given that suburban translates as less than or below urban. And often it's seeking to support that relationship that's shaped transport planning. Um, but I think there are lots of other features that set suburbs apart from their rural and urban neighbours and mean that they need that tailored approach that we try and um, get across in this report. So you've got the, the fact that 
land use is is mainly residential they're the places that we live rather than rather than just work um and that they vary enormously in in the amount of assets that they've they've got the shops the services and the connections between those will vary greatly um as nick said there's the density issue uh, we tend to have suburbs in the uk densities of around 10 to 40 dwellings per hectare which is quite low compared to european counterparts now, some really interesting research that Centre for Cities did um, showing that 40% um, of our suburban residents around our UK largest cities can access city centres within 30 minutes. Um, but that that's 70% for, for residents around similar size European cities. That's quite a difference. And they found that that's mainly to do with the fact that our, our suburbs are a lot less dense and you just can't get that critical mass needed. Um, and then finally, unlike urban and rural areas, suburbs are favoured particularly by families with children. They're where most of us grew up, and yet we don't generally plan uh, to, to support the journeys of families within suburbs and the independent mobility of children. It's more about how can we connect this suburb to the city and the town, rather than looking at how we can make local trips um, easy and safe. So that's, that's how we've kind of framed suburbs in the report. And Becky, why are suburbs particularly important in tackling the climate emergency? Well, I think because they're where most of us live um, and there can't be de decarbonisation of transport without specific measures to decarbonise transport in the suburbs. We've paid a lot of attention to how we can decarbonise transport in cities. But, you know, a lot of the traffic coming into cities is from the suburbs um, and those measures need to be designed with the common features of suburbs in mind as well as the unique ways in which they've evolved and we need to target action where, where car dependency is the greatest and that is in the suburbs but I think the other point that we try and make in the report is that for suburbs to play their their role in tackling the climate emergency we can't just look at transport alone we need to look at the planning system how dense our housing is um, how the transport is powered the connections to energy um, how we can as Nick mentioned at the beginning, how we can make best use of the existing assets that we've already got, underused assets or using assets in a different way to provide more of what people need locally. And we also need to look um, at how we can get more green and blue infrastructure into our suburbs to kind of try to mitigate some of the effects of climate change. I mean, I think the heat wave last week showed us how woefully unprepared we are in terms of our systems and our homes for, for what's coming down the track. So I think climate change resilience in the suburbs is, is going to be a big topic um, in the future, in the very near future. And Nick, did you have any thoughts about suburbs and the climate emergency and um, the kind of policies that would uh, uh, ensure that suburbs are playing their full part in the response, both in terms of resilience and yes. reducing carbon emissions? Well, I think the key one of the points that emerges from your report, particularly the very useful chart on on trips, is that only a small proportion, twelve percent or so, of trips are actually commuting to work. And, and so, in terms of what people do when they get out of their house and they make a trip, we have to make it much easier not to get to avoid the car and and to walk or or, or, or cycle. What infuriates me is how difficult we make it. Uh, uh, we make it hard to go to cross uh, uh, the uh, corner, but we, we, if 
we make it necessary to take a convoluted route often. Uh, if we try and find our way in a place we don't know, the signing is usually abysmal. There are very, uh, the, there's a mess in terms of uh, sort of street clutter, most of it municipal. Um, many people complain that not just of, of ruts in the roads, but the, the pavements are in a terrible state. And, and of course, quite often the under greening that we welcome because it keeps us cool and, and improves the quality of the air is, is often uh, untidy in, in many people's minds. So I, I think that the priority I would continually going back to is that if we want to make places healthier, if we want to reduce carbon emissions, above all, we've got to focus on walking. I, I, a very important thing happened to me once when I took a, a leading uh, academic in York, round the uh, town, on his wheelchair because he couldn't walk. And I really recommend all planners to just put somebody in a well wheelchair, maybe, maybe their child, maybe their grandmother or something, and see what's involved, even in a relatively um, friendly place like York. And you find it's very, very difficult indeed. And that shouldn't be the case. In my view, in the centres at least, and this applies to local centres as well as city centres, the, the pedestrian on foot and the family should should get priority. So that's that's a central point. I, I would make one further point. It's very noticeable that where you have street trees, the places are much cooler. They're, they're much more effective than air conditioning, which belts uh, hot air out into the streets um, because they shade the streets in the first place. And through transpiration, the evaporation of water, that actually acts like air conditioning. So for goodness sake, let us not cut down any trees. Um, let's think twice about pruning them. So you see the most ugly pruning often in, in towns, God knows why, perhaps they feel they're doing it to avoid an insurance claim. But for goodness sake, let us learn to live with trees and learn to live with big street trees to keep the heat out. And by the way, you'll then notice that the insects are eaten by the birds and you can hear the birds. Whereas once we've denuded the streets of trees, they will be, you'll hear nothing but traffic. And uh, moving on to where we've been and where we are now, um, Becky, how do you think the COVID-19 pandemic has changed the debate about suburbs and the role they have and how people see them? Um, uh, as a result of the pandemic? I think people have had a, the opportunity to spend a lot more time in suburbs. With the lockdowns, people are spending a lot of time in their own neighbourhoods trying to discover what's there and what's lacking as well. So it's much clearer to people now what what is in their local neighbourhoods. And I think also those early lockdowns when really people were not moving around at all gave us kind of a glimpse of a different way of living um the roads were quiet the air felt clean you could hear the birds people were out walking and cycling there were children outside you know drawing with chalk on the streets it would be nice to recapture some of that um i mean encouragingly looking at the transport trends cycling is the only mode that's remained consistently above pre-pandemic levels so i think that's an encouraging sign but i don't think it's clear yet what the lasting impact is going to be of the pandemic. Um, for example, around remote working, it's still not an option for most pe- most workers, despite the amount of time we spend talking about it. But still, remote working has more than doubled um, from pre-pandemic levels and bus and rail travel is still 
10 to 20 percent below pre-pandemic levels of obviously the people the way that people are people's lifestyles has obviously changed from 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 the experience of covid but it's kind of trying to protect some of the the better things that we might have learned from from the pandemic because um you could argue and your report covers that to some extent that we went through a period where the suburbs were neglected not just policy wise but in t- to some suburbs in terms of their physical infrastructure um mm-hmm. and uh is it could it be that a new kind of golden age of the suburbs might be upon us uh, certainly a lot of policies focused on cities uh, city centers recently um uh, what, what do you think Nick? are we looking at a new golden age for suburbs well, I fear that uh, we're probably doing all the wrong things in the sense that um, we're becoming much more selfish and self-centered. We're, we're, we've lost the sort of collective or civic value of doing things together. Um, and, and I don't see the future as being just sitting hunched over a, a laptop and, and getting deliveries by um, uh, some firm or other. So for our health, which to my mind is the thing that may unite people. I, I think people find it hard to envisage uh, carbon in the air, but they can, the air often looks quite clean, uh, but they can envisage the health problems of not being able to breathe well and so on. So I would like to think that for that alone, people will be changing their behavior, which is the critical thing to happen. Um, I'd like to think that people will look at the good examples uh, and um, I realize London is in a different category, but undoubtedly, uh, things like the overground have had a huge transformative effect on the uh, east end of London, places like Hackney. So a relatively cheap method of just bringing frequent and uh, modern trains and upgrading the stations has shifted behaviour in a very significant way and improved the lives of people in, in, in northeast London. Um, I'd like to think that one of the things that will happen is that people start looking at comparable cities in Europe, forgetting about this awful Brexit business, and... Um, start saying, well, how can we copy what seems to work? And I keep citing Copenhagen, which, Jonathan, you were impressed by, weren't you? Um, uh, yeah, I was there recently and uh, did all the new exciting cycleways and uh, saw some of the suburbs. Um, yeah, it's well, uh, the, a different The, the message from the Copenhagen is that 30 years ago, the city was going bankrupt um, because of industrial decline and so on. So, and, and the city engineer, Pohl, progressively took away parking, 3% a year, never enough to annoy anyone, but enough over time to make a difference. And that space was given over to cyclists. It wasn't the case that people always cycle, and and the weather in Copenhagen in the winter is far worse than uh, most of Britain. So it wasn't favorable, but what they made space for cycling. That was the first thing. Then they've developed new suburb, Oristad, on the line uh, out to the airport. And that was able to finance a new metro line by using the uplift in land values. So Copenhagen has grown as a city, uh, not just by redeveloping areas in the center like the docks, but by creating uh, sustainable new suburbs along the route of a, a, a rapid transit link or metro, as well as the, uh, along the, the rail line. So it seems to me that if, if people are going anywhere these days, they should be making sure they go to Northern Europe, preferably by train from Euristan. By the way, you can, of course, get to Amsterdam at least. Copenhagen may be a bit too far. And asking uh, themselves, how do they do it? Why can't we do it something similar to? And um, 
that would be a sort of overall message. Uh, if, but if you can't even do that, at least get on the overground uh, and go to somewhere like Dalston and see how it's changed. Yeah, it strikes me that um, some of the Nordic countries are the kind of R&D for the world and perhaps the hope of the world in terms yes. of what they're doing on, on climate and transport and more widely. Um, and they're also quite outward facing as well. They, they want to share it with the world. So mm. kind of brave and international. So um, there's always stuff we can learn. And I think one of the interesting things about Copenhagen as well is they we do have um, transit orientated development in the UK, but it's perhaps more patchy and thinking somewhere like Barking Reach. Mm. Uh, uh, Barking Riverside Station opened recently, all good stuff. But in Copenhagen, of course, you've got the the finger plan where it's done in a much more systematic way um, uh, than uh, we do it here. And, and everything in Britain costs far too much. It costs at least twice, if not three or four times, what it would cost to do something similar in the on the continent. So we have to find ways of of doing things at less cost but with more value. Yeah. And. Uh, Becky, do you, when you were doing the report, uh, what did you think about the data that's available about how suburban residents travel or the gaps in that data? And what do those gaps mean for decision-making around transport priorities? I think there's certainly some gaps there. I mean, we know a lot about how people commute to work in and out of the suburbs. Um, and we know that the car is the most popular mode to get to work. And we know from the, the chart that Nick referred to that as, as places get less dense, car use goes up. Um, but we know a lot less about the wide range of other journeys that will be going on in the suburbs, particularly around how children and families travel and patterns around the mobility of care, which is the journeys that result from home and caring responsibilities, which in our report, we show that counted together, they have the potential to be far more significant than the proportion of journeys related to commuting. Um, but the, the, the difficulty is that those journeys are really hard to measure. Um, they may form part of longer trip, trip chains. Those kind of shorter journeys don't hit sensors. They don't hit cording counts or ticket machines. Keeping travel diaries to monitor those kinds of journeys is costly, it's unreliable. So it's easier to plan for the journeys that we can easily measure and those are the journeys in and out of city centres but they're not necessarily the most important for suburbs and I think that's sort of affected the interventions that we've prioritised so we need to get better at capturing that wider range of journeys I think. Are either you aware of anywhere that is better than um, perhaps the norm in terms of data and capturing the, the diversity of travel trips made in suburbs by a diversity of different types of people or is it a, a wider problem around the world that we're just not capturing this kind of data? I, I think quite often we have data we just don't bring it together. Um, I, I, I think that the sharing of data between different departments as well as between different authorities is very important and then mapping that data so one can see visually um, what, what's going on. Uh, the, uh, the, there's enormous progress been made in academic circles with things like geodesign, uh, but I'm not sure that if, if the, the the real world, if you like, has has caught up with uh, what is possible. Uh, the government seems to be all in favour of using data because I suppose they think it will save save on numbers of people. But the the trick is to get people interested in using and drawing conclusions from data. And I think the sort of maps I was, or the statistics I was referring to are a start. I may say one more thing. 
Um, Freiburg is often cited as a model. And what I've noticed in Freiburg is a very simple shift over time. Uh, about 30, 40 years ago, two thirds of trips were by car, which is more or less what happens in Britain today. But, but um, when I last looked at the figures uh, a few years ago, it was a, a third cars, a third trams or um, public transport, and a third cycling. And I think that's a nice sort of model to have in your mind. In other words, you don't, you're not going to eliminate the car. It's just not using the car when it isn't necessary. And of course, as it gets more expensive, particularly to park a car, and it should be expensive to park a car, so people will think twice about having a second or third car. Um, they may even think of, of having a, a more energy efficient or even an electric car. Uh, so I think that, that that will help, but but we we won't get rid of it altogether. Uh, it, I use the term taming the car because I, I see the car as like a wild animal and we've got to just put it in its place and not let it dominate our lives as it does in too many suburbs. So let's move on to uh, what the opportunities are. And by the way, uh, for our audience, um, we've got one question in the question box, but um, keep them coming because we've come to those near uh, near the end of our session. Can you tell us what you think the hallmarks of a sustainable suburb are from a transport point of view? What, what does a sustainable suburb look like? What are the elements of it? Well, in the report, um, we set out four foundations for a sustainable suburb. I like to keep things simple. I like to keep things in fours. Um, so the first of those is to help people to access more of what they need locally, because obviously the most the best way of cutting transport emissions is to, to remove the journey altogether if we can. Um, second is, is to provide family friendly, sustainable transport solutions. But luckily, as I said at the start, um, transport interventions that are good for children and families tend to be the same as those that are good for the planet. So that's a nice overlap there. Um, foundation number three is all about densification, gentle densification around sustainable transport infrastructure. Some of that transit orientated development that we were talking about, light barking um, Riverside. That helps to build critical mass to support more transport provision and more local living. Um, and it can also support people to live more locally if that densification also takes place around existing service, not just transport services, but other services and amenities too. And the fourth foundation is is to, to keep that connection with the nearest town or city as well as um, employment sites and provide reliable, convenient ways um, to reach uh, those urban areas and recognising that it might not always be possible to have you know, as much as we would like, um, it might not be possible to have those public transport, traditional public transport connections, but there are other means uh, that we can look at. And is there a, a magic bullet here? What about some of the uh, newer ideas or fashionable ideas, things like mobility hubs, um, e-scooters, uh, mobility, micro-mobility? Um, is there uh, merit in those? Are they going to be a breakthrough or is it a combination of measures? I think mobility hubs have huge potential because you're effectively rivaling the convenience of the car by placing choice on people's doorsteps. You know, a mobility hub could be popped up in any suburb. There's a really good example in the report from Transport for West Midlands uh, where um, they've kind of developed a kit of parts, a modular kit of parts for a mobility hub that you can easily scale up or down, include different types of mobility. 
and that flexibility I think is really valuable because you can test test them out in different locations within the suburbs see what works see what's needed see what there's demand for and expand them or scale them down or move them as, as necessary I think the thinking behind that for uh, Transport for West Midlands was that they found that 15% of journeys made in their patch were in city centres and mobility hubs they see as a way to serve the other 85% of journeys that might take place more more locally in between suburbs. So I think that's got huge potential. But I think the thing to be aware of is not just to place them in the wealthy, affluent neighbourhoods, put them in places that could, could make the biggest difference to people's lives. So um, in Bremen, in Germany, uh, the aim is to have a mobility hub every 300 metres, which is which is great. Um, and there's another example in the report from St. Louis in Missouri, uh, where their e-scooter rental companies are required to keep 20% of their fleet in underserved neighbourhoods. So I think measures like that can really support, given that we've seen kind of the suburbanisation of poverty over the years. It's not just a kind of a place, a place of affluence. And we have very uh, relatively low car occupancy rates in the UK compared to some of our European neighbours. Um, we think there's ways, given the car is not just king as emperor in, uh, or empress in um, a lot of our suburbs, is there more that could be done around cars improving occupancy and reducing environmental impact? Cross-car car sharing, it, it makes such obvious sense. And we have all sorts of um, tricks like WhatsApp or whatever, which we can use to connect people up and find out when people are going to places. So it seems to be common sense that people will, over time, begin to share things more. Um, I, I'd like to think they will be incentivized either no, for example, by having high density lanes on roads so that um, you can only travel on them if you've got passengers and so on. Um, so that should be a step forward. Um, I'm, I'm intrigued by this term mobility hub, which we didn't use in <laughs> sustainable suburbs toolkit. I, I'm, I'm never sure whether it's just we invent new words for old things, but we particularly stressed interchanges. And I remember the, uh, discussions with transport planners at the time when we were producing this, they were focusing on just a very few uh, important interchanges. But my own feeling was that interchanges or junctions generally should meet certain standards. And uh, if I was preaching one thing to your uh, members, I, I would say, look at every place where there's several things meet uh, or could meet. And that includes trains meeting buses or, or the big car and, and see make it as easy as possible to transfer the the idea that people should make sit in one mode for stand in one mode from end to end it seems to me is very primitive um changing can be a pleasure and indeed the experience you know in in a good station is as great an experience as it's like going into a cathedral isn't it uh, at its worst it's like uh, going into hell so I, I, I would suggest that interchanges are crucial places to start with and by all means make the mobility hubs in terms of being able to uh, hire bikes or uh, including electric bikes. Uh, and Nick, you've talked uh, about uh, why we should be doing more walking uh, and also uh, new suburbs around uh, rail corridors, light rail, rail. Are there other key elements in the toolkit that you'd like to bring up that you haven't already and also you talked about yes. Copenhagen you talked about Freiburg um, are there other 
um, examples of approaches. Well, one thing that impressed me, like talk about. reading through the toolkit again after 20 <laughs> so years um, uh, this morning, was just how many tools there were. Uh, and and I, I worry that people get obsessed with one thing or another, electric cars are the thing, or car clubs are the thing, and it's all these things, and it's trying to do a number, which is why the term integrated transit, to my mind. And by the way, I, th I think public transport is sometimes a bad word to use, uh, but I, th I think transit or, uh, makes much more, more sense. And, and the idea of getting around swiftly, uh, uh, seems to me, or rapidly, is quite sensible. Um, I think the other thing um, I would I, I noticed that um, uh, I'm, I'm desperately looking at uh, for the list. Yes, school travel. Now in Zurich, if you go there, you'll find that children over the age of six are required to walk to school on their own because they believe it's good for citizenship. And I, I think if we just imagined, why can't children walk to school or cycle to school on their own? And then what conditions are necessary to achieve that? Zurich has uh, one of the highest qualities of life as well as uh, uh, the highest uh, economic output uh, of any city in the world. Um, so it's doing a few things uh, right. Um, uh, I, I would go back to my point about signage. Um, I went to see, uh, stay in Preston to check it out. And, and it may be doing wonderful things in promoting cooperatives and, and local procurement, but the signing is abysmal on the whole. I, you, when you get to the railway station, there's nothing to tell you uh, where anywhere is. There's no maps. In the hotels, there are no maps available. Oh, in the Holiday Inn, anyway, there were no maps available. I, they've got this wonderful bus station with some 40 different bays, but no information in it. And I, I feel that they're missing a trick. Instead of looking at the things that are really expensive and complicated, let's start with the things that are really simple. As I say, like uh, cleaning the streets and making sure you're not treading in dog shit as you walk along or whatever it may be because these are the things that people notice and until we do the things that matter to most people people will not have any trust in government to do the more complicated and expensive things so that would be by my my general message i suppose the same it would apply to lighting uh, i remember research at cambridge which showed that street lighting was far more effective in deterring crime than cctv and yet you see people spending fortunes on in introducing CCTV cameras, which nobody ever looks at, and, and not doing the basics of turning uh, yellow lights into white lights, whatever they're, they're called. So simple, straightforward things that will make it pleasant and safe at all times of the day, and, and also quiet, because we have far too much urban noise. I don't know, Becky, if you want to come back on any of that, or whether you might just want to explain a bit more what, we, what mobility hubs are, buzzword aren't they but um if you could just say a little bit more about them perhaps anything else you might want to add in around the the car sharing point um Carol? Mm. well mobility hubs bring together a range of micro mobility modes like e-scooters e-bikes um cycles they can also bring in car club vehicles depending on the size of the hub and bring them all into one place ideally under one integrated booking system whether that's through through map through uh, mobility as a service and you know an, an integrated ticketing kind of system so it brings them all together in one place so you've got that choice um nearby i think 
uh, one thing that we haven't perhaps touched on so much is the potential of e-bikes, which I think mm. really have a lot of potential for suburbs, um, because there's no way that we can support, the grid can't support everyone to have an electric car, mm. uh, but we could potentially support everyone to have an electric bike um, or an e-cargo bike and have a shared car available as a backup. Um, I heard about an example in Antwerp where you can rent an e-bike for three euros a day or they will help you to, to purchase one with a subsidy and that city is expressly targeting suburban, suburban and rural residents mm. and they see it as the main way to get suburban residents out of their cars and in our own research has found that suburbs have uh, the greatest potential for e-bike e take-up. They can fill the gaps in the public transport network, they mm. can connect suburbs to each other, to the, the nearest city and town, and could replace at least 100 million car and taxi trips. But I think, again, it needs to be a package of measures. Um, it needs to be accompanied by investment in infrastructure. So if we think again about the features of suburbs, that they're favoured by families with children, the only way we'll get everyone in the family on two wheels, women and children are far more likely to cycle if there's some sort of protected, connected infrastructure, not just between the city and the suburb, but locally. And I think it doesn't have to be costly. It could be the kind of low traffic neighbourhood approach where you're just using very low cost infrastructure, like a few very heavy planters to block off yeah. one side of the road, just to make that whole experience a lot more pleasant and safe because there's no way at the moment that I would let my children walk to school because there's just too much traffic. Mm. So I have to walk with them. But because can I, people can I make a case for tubs, by the way? You just mentioned planters. Well, I'm always amazed we don't try things out. We, we, we will go to some incredibly expensive system that supplies to London to separate bicycles from uh, pedestrians or, or the car, rather than just trying them out with simple things we can move if they don't, don't work. So let's be putting many more pots onto the streets and using them to delineate safe uh, routes. Um, and, to, and to show that something is happening, uh, which is, after all, key to, as I say, regaining trust in, in local authorities. That's it. And we're never going to be able to afford to put in protected cycle lanes within every neighbourhood. But things mm. like that can make a big difference to how comfortable people feel to yeah. let their children yeah. scoot off in, ahead of them without mm. worrying they're going to get squashed by a car. So, yeah. By the way, in Shanghai, where I happened to be there a few years ago, 25% uh, um, of trips uh, I've discovered were being done by e-bikes e of one kind or another. And, and of course, that includes electric scooters. Uh, I, I've got a lovely photograph of, of people at the traffic lights all looking at their phones, <laughs> waiting for the lights uh, to change. <laughs> and, and, and that I could see was, was the future, because as you point out, it's a relatively cheap thing uh, to do, but it does overcome the problem of, of distance uh, or, or hills, uh, mm. which maybe you know, deter some people from using getting on their bikes. Yes, because we seem to be more obsessed with e-scooters than we are with e-bikes in this country. But the e-bike take-up in countries like Germany is, is quite astonishing, isn't it? it mm. One in eight households now have an e-bike in Germany, I think. Mm. Um, is there more that we could be doing um, to uh, promote and mainstream e-bikes? And do does it do e-scooters have a role in a suburban mm. environment? Yeah. I, I, I 
used to cycle in London and, and rather like with skiing, I lost my nerve at, at some point because I, I found that going around roundabouts, um, I just couldn't look back to see whether anything was coming and, and it, it became frightening. It does seem to me that one of the things that in, they've done in Denmark is get rid of roundabouts which are, uh, and go to crossroads again. And uh, if, if people are thinking more complicated things to do, I think trying to reconfigure roads to make it easy and safe to cycle and walk and, and put the car into, if, if you like, into second place outside A roads and situations which are where cars get priority. We, we've got to be able to distinguish different types of, of places and, and uh, try uh, the concept of low traffic neighborhoods or whatever seems to me a very sensible one, but it, it seems to me much more plentiful, including restricting uh, speeds to 20 miles an hour and so on. Um, but again, we do think, we, we make things rather complicated. We put these awful humps in which uh, annoy everyone, rather than doing creating simple detours so that people have to wiggle or their way through a street and therefore reduce their, uh, their speed that way. Or uh, I think we can use parking to good effect, uh, by the way, uh, because if park cars are parked in a street, most people will then think, well, the car is going to suddenly uh, come out, and so I need to re regulate my speed. Uh, I'm sure your members will know that lines in streets just encourage people to go faster. So there are a whole lot of things that, if we just change the culture, the way we look at things, can produce a huge transformation in in the suburban uh, life. Uh, we don't and 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 match the the best of our city centres in terms of the quality of experience. Yeah, I think I think people maybe need to get away from the expectation that they'll be able to park their car outside their house. Absolutely. There's some there's some great examples of suburbs in the report where car parking is kept separate and so are bins. Bins are centralised. So you've got that all that space just for greenery, for trees, for benches, for play play areas, for bike storage. Yeah. You've suddenly opened up loads of space and made that neighbourhood a lot yeah. a lot safer as well. Whether one of the things that appalls me is the way we've been allowing people to concrete over their front gardens and plonk mm. uh, cars there rather than have, keeping the cars in the street. And of course, the beauty, I remember I lived in Hampstead Garden suburb before we moved to King's Cross 20 years ago. And what I noticed was that people had cars in Hampstead Garden suburb, but they didn't use them very much because they knew that as soon as they moved, from the huh? place in the street, they wouldn't be able to find a parking place again. So <laughs> they just kept their car sitting there. And I'm quite happy with that. If they like to own a car uh, and look at it from time to time, that, that's <laughs> wonderful. But they shouldn't be using it to make short trips. So let's uh, abolish the idea of people being able to park on their own hereditary uh, and, and uh, uh, prohibit uh, the concreting over front gardens, uh, mm. certainly in places that have any environmental quality. And, and recover, as you said earlier, Becky, green places so that uh, everyone feels they live in, a, in the good life, which is the title of your excellent report. <laughs> and indeed, um, the more extreme climate, obviously we've been considering on heat recently, but flooding is the other one. And uh, mm. so much concrete now uh, mm. for hard standing for vehicles. Is it any surprise we get this? Uh, these floods can be pretty bad. Mm. Um, so, I just wanted to start to bring in some questions. If other people in the audience would like to uh, add any points or questions, then please do. Um, just pick up uh, a point from John K. 
car about are there any examples of 15 to 20 minute suburbs either in new developments or adapted from existing settlements is this a useful planning concept or a passing catch term that's interesting wasn't it because the idea of a 20 minute city became as it is uh, quite fashionable and the, the mayor of paris is advocating it strongly but there are some counter arguments aren't there so where do you guys stand on 20 minute cities or 20 minute suburbs if I may start on that, you may recall the concept was introduced by the mayor of Paris, uh, Madame Hidalgo, after a, a study by an Italian uh, architect, um, whose name I forget at the moment. And it, it, it was really arguing that Paris should be seen as a series of 15-minute neighbourhoods. And Paris, so you will notice, the, the, the buildings are typically five or six storeys high. And so I think with Tim, it's not necessarily a concept that's going to work in every every place. I think that if we just thought in terms of walkable neighborhoods, it would make more sense. That's my first point. The second point is that the places, these town centers or that have done worst are the smaller ones where the, the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker is all closed down, where, except in the ethnic neighbourhoods where the, the local shop still seems to work. So I, I think there is a, uh, I realise it goes perhaps beyond your remit as, as transport planners, but I, th I think there's a whole issue of trying to ensure occupancy of local centres. So there is something to, to walk to. Um, I think it's also very sensible that uh, schools uh, are seen as multi-purpose places and that um, so that they're used uh, at night as well as uh, during the daytime. Um, and, and that forms an important part of, of keeping uh, places uh, alive. Um, I, I'm by all means have that idea in one's mind, 15 or 20 minutes neighborhood. Um, but I think one doesn't want to spend too much time sort of counting out how long it takes to get to everywhere rather than applying the, the good practice that we've been talking about, which is referred to in your report. Yeah, I think it's sort of a, a valuable way of getting you to think about it, you know, what is what what assets a neighbourhood has and how you can make best use of those assets and make sure that the connections exist between them. Because, for example, in the report, you might have an affordable supermarket that's technically within walking distance, mm. but then you have to walk along the side of a motorway to get to it sort yes. of thing. So it's kind of it's useful for for bringing to light those kind of issues, I think, and providing a focus of what the priority gaps are to fill and also where we could make better use of the assets we've got. Like yes. you mentioned the example of schools, there's the, the, the case study in the report about school sports halls and sports facilities being used out of hours because for a lot of suburbs that will be their nearest sports facility. Yes, that becomes the heart, the heart of, the, of the suburb, so to speak. Yeah. Um, well, one of the things I, I, in some research I did in looking at, uh, through a network of looking at new neighbourhoods or new communities, I was very struck by the mistake planners were making of trying to put centres in the centre. <laughs> and I argued that the, the centre of any new settlement needs to be on the edge because it needs to be a place which could serve the surrounding area. In no way can a new community uh, support much in the way of, of, of shopping. Um, so you, you've got to think of, of, of reconsidering where we relocate places for maximum accessibility. And, and you're absolutely right. The most appalling thing are, are these 
huge boxes that we built or sheds, which are surrounded by uh, cars, uh, which are most unpleasant to walk through and which are accessed off, off effectively uh, motorways, which are then provided at public expense. And we don't even think that we should charge the uh, retailers for the privilege of, 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 of all that accessibility, which the public has paid for. Whereas the poor little shop in the town centre is paying business rates for no particular services. So I, I think that um, if we were thinking about finance, we've got to uh, reduce the cost of using local services and increase the server, the cost of using services that can only be accessed by car. Thanks. We have another question from Jay Thrush uh, from Transport West Midlands. So he asks, with lower population densities in suburbs, can we have attractive turn up and go frequency core bus routes, 10 minutes or better, uh, when difficult to run commercially, and network coverage bus services at lower frequencies. So I suppose this raises the question of what role uh, the bus has to play in the future of suburbs and also the balance between conventional buses and demand responsive services, particularly in the context of the UK where the bus has been in retreat for a very long time. Mm. Becky, do you want to start? Yeah, and I know in the West Midlands, um, as part of their um, future transport zone work, they are looking at, um, and there's an example in the report of uh, technology-driven DRT services, kind of the next generation of, you know, the, the ring and rides uh, that we're all familiar with, but using technology to really optimise routes and capacity for passengers and, and making a very flexible service. But as we also make the point in the report, a lot of DRT services end up very costly. They, they're very prone to failure. So I think we've also got to balance that with support for conventional um, bus services. But the, as I mentioned, the, the research from Centre for Cities showed that you know, even if we put um, those connections in or put the rail connections in, um, still the densities around them are not enough to expand the proportion of people that are, are quickly able to, to mm. access centres. It's crucially important that new settlements are located on transport corridors, uh, mm. uh, places that are served by public transport. That's the first point. And far too much of the housing that's been built in recent years in this country, and far too little has been built, but far too much of that has been put in places that can only be accessed by cars. So that's the the first uh, point. I, I personally um, am a bit dubious about the potential for increasing use of, of, of buses, not because I dislike buses, and, uh, and certainly the modern bus uh, uh, is, is relatively um, uh, climate uh, neutral, if that's the right word. It doesn't emit vast amounts of pollution and so on and so forth, except it does from its tires and its brakes which uh, are the real hell, uh, killers as far as health is, is concerned. The, the, my reason for, the, for being sceptical is I've noticed that people just don't see buses as being a, a, an attractive alternative to cars um, outside London, um, perhaps other uh, dense cities um, where the services are pretty frequent and you can predict when it's coming along. Um, I think that when you have... Uh, as we have in most of London, bus stops where you can know when the next bus is coming along or you have apps that can check it, then buses can be more appealing. 
but that uncertainty about whether the bus is going to come gives trams uh, such a, an advantage because if they see the rails, they know that something's going to come along there before too long. Uh, that's a, a, a general point. Trams are, of course, much more comfortable. They don't bounce up and down as, as buses tend to do. And I, I do recommend everyone tries the uh, uh, the rapid the bus rapid transit or guided bus in, in Cambridge and sees how unsatisfactory that really is. Uh, and yet it costs almost as much to... Uh, to provide as as, as reinstating uh, trains on the on the former rail line, so it seems to me that the, this British idea that somehow buses are much better value, they're the cheap option, uh, which I'm sure is promoted by the bus manufacturers, should be taken very carefully outside, obviously main routes where you can provide a frequency of service and also where the bus can stop without holding up the the rest of the of, of the traffic because there's the space for it. Um, and um, I would go back to my point that we could make much more use of, of local rail, suburban rail, uh, including reopening stations that have closed down. If we just simply looked at, at lines which are taken for granted as just serving long distances and, and thought again about their potential to serve suburbs. Great, thanks both. So running down the clock. So a minute from each of you, on what interventions offer the most promise in terms of transforming mobility in the suburbs or any other ideas or thoughts that you haven't had time to raise so far? We'll start with Becky. Yeah, well, I, I think the history of suburbs is in many ways the history of transport developments as well. And I think we need to think about what is going to be the next wave of innovation that shapes our cities. And I don't think it's electric cars, even though they will have a role to play. Um, you'll still have parked cars everywhere. You'll still have particulates from tyres getting into our air and water. You still have the road danger. You still have the lack of space uh, for safe and active travel and for play. So I think the next generation of suburbs should focus on removing journeys where possible, enabling people to live a more local life as the climate emergency demands that we do. Um, enable the majority of journeys to be made on foot or by bike with shared cars as a backup. And that could be as revolutionary as the early railway suburbs were and would be totally in line with their initial conception as places where the good life can be achieved. And it's not a radical vision because cities and suburbs all over Europe are doing that. They're enabling people to use viable alternatives to the car and stopping enabling car use as a default. So it can be done. I I would say that the future lies in the digital revolution, and I'm just going to hold up uh, my smartphone with City Mapper, which I use all the time uh, to find the best way of getting around. I don't know how many cities City Mapper or equivalent operates in, but it's fantastically useful in finding out the alternative ways of getting to wherever you're trying to get to uh, and combinations. So uh, something like I mentioned going. Uh, to visit my uh, brother's hill um, using uh, the overground. Um, you, you you don't necessarily get to the place you're getting, want to get to in the most direct route um, uh, because you, 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 you do a convoluted journey using a combination of, of modes and City Mapper helps you to do that. I think being told the time the next bus is coming along, it makes it much more com easier and comfortable to use the the bus, even if you've got to wait 10 minutes, at least you know it's the high probability of being in 10 minutes. 
Uh, so uh, I would think the revolution lies in in you in in applying the digital revolution and then not relying on it entirely, but also producing it in in in, in simple giveaway maps or things that can be posted up so people can see for themselves what the forms of transport are available and make the most of them. And and and, and sorry, one final point. And and let's give respect to the people who keep the streets looking good and. <laughs> It seems to me the whole series of operatives we take for granted, but who should see, be seen as a key part of a modern transport system. Thanks, and, and thanks to Becky and Nick for what was a fantastic discussion and conversation, really full of ideas and examples and uh, really good analysis. A few thoughts from me. Um, I learned a lot, but um, no one suburb out there different suburbs and there's no one answer or solution but there's a whole range of uh, tools that we have in combination with some imagination and creativity and thought that can be used. Um, I think the discussion was making me want to go to some of these places I haven't been yet like Freiburg um, because they're I think what some of our neighbours in Scandinavia and the Netherlands are very good at is what someone describes to me as the good ordinary Mm. Uh, in the UK, we're very good at spectacular architecture and uh, mm. spectacular developments in the city centres, but not so good elsewhere. But if you go to somewhere like Eiberg in Amsterdam or some of the new suburbs in, in Stockholm, really quite movingly good, mm. um, but that good, ordinary, not showy. Mm. Um, and also being uh, looking at ideas that are simple but also clever, so wriggle uh, but don't hump. That's <laughs> one, one uh, example. Yes. Um, but also, um, this is the cutting edge, I think. We need to, it's an exciting policy area. I really recommend people have a look at the report if you haven't so far. It's really good. Mm. It's been great to have this dialogue with Nick, always full of great ideas and examples. And yes. but, uh, I, I think Becky is going to share some of the uh, reports yeah, we've done, on, on the, which yeah. I hope will be useful to people. Uh, London is... Not necessarily always in the lead, but the, the, there are certainly some things you can learn from yeah. what's been done here. So, um, a great discussion. Uh, thanks to our panel and to everyone who took part live. And for those listening into the podcast or watching the playback on YouTube, um, I hope you'll be able to join us for Urban Transport Next 15 in October, where our topic will be the future of streets. So, thank you and goodbye.